Well, good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series hosted by the University of Sydney at the Seymour Theatre Centre. The format this evening is a one-hour lecture by Tanya Reinhardt followed by a half-hour question and answer session. There are two microphones at the bottom of the aisles and we'll ask you to please come down to the microphones to ask your questions. And then there'll be a book signing by Tanya in the upstairs Everest foyer after. This is the 10th lecture in the Sydney Ideas series this year and we are very pleased to co-present tonight's event with the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'd like to very quickly mention the next Sydney Ideas lecture on the 30th of October. Professor Jerry Stoker is Professor of Political Science and Co-Director of the Institute for Political and Economic Governance at the University of Manchester. The title of his lecture will be Politics, Does It Matter? The critical state of political engagement in mature democracies has been a theme of two of this year's Sydney Ideas lectures by John Keane and Paul Ginsburg, and Professor Jerry Stoker has some very interesting practical ideas about how to re-engage the community in the democratic process. So for anyone working in politics or government, particularly at the grassroots level, I encourage you to come and see Professor Stoker on the 30th of August. Sorry, October. Also, if you would like to stay in touch with the Sydney Ideas program, check our website regularly or join our email list. And you can fill in the form on your seats and place it in the box at the front of the large man sculpture at the top of the stairs in the Everest foyer. So now, to introduce our speaker tonight, Professor Tanya Reinhardt, is Peter Manning. Peter is a senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Technology, a former head of TV news and current affairs at the ABC, and the author of Us and Them, a journalist's investigation into the media, Muslims and the Middle East, just published by Random House. Thank you, Peter. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's great pleasure to be here tonight and to have two universities combining to have uh, a great speaker. I think that's uh, terrific cooperation between both universities and uh, it's a pleasure to, to do that. Um, I'm the acting director of the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism uh, at uh, UTS uh, and the ACIJ, <clears throat> along with uh, the Sydney Ideas program at Sydney University, is co-presenting uh, this. And, of course, Tanya Reinhardt is actually in Australia, has come from Adelaide University, where she presented the second Edward Said Memorial Lecture. Uh, can I just remind everyone to turn mobiles off, please? Um, there's nothing worse, I've done it myself, uh, to have a mobile going off uh, in the middle of a program like this tonight. Let me say it's um, my absolute huge pleasure um, to be able to introduce uh, a woman whose bravery and conviction is an inspiration to us all. Uh, I think in Australia there are even in these dark times, people who feel that 
now is not the time to speak out and say what they think. They hide behind an adversarial mask, seek desperately to champion both sides of any debate, and refuse to be locked into any single intellectual or political position. Not so this distinguished woman we have here tonight. Tanya Reinhardt truly lives by the now famous phrase of the great Palestinian scholar Edward Said when he exhorted his colleagues to speak truth to power. Tanya is a world-renowned Chomskyan linguistic scholar. It's in that role that she's lectured and taught at Tel Aviv University in Israel and that she's been sought by the University of Utrecht in Holland, where she also lectures at the moment, and now the New York University in the United States. But she is also the author of two devastating books, Israel-Palestine, How to End the War of 1948, and her current Roadmap to Nowhere, just released by Verso. Finally, and very importantly, She's a columnist with Israel's highest-selling newspaper, Yediat Aharonot. In all three of those roles, some might have been tempted to temper one's words for fear of offending the powers that be. But Tanya Reinhardt has been a beacon of clarity, bravery, integrity and honesty in the life of Israel. Whether you agree with her or not, you know where she's coming from and what she represents. And for those who haven't read either of her books yet, she's not a fan of the military occupation of Palestine, nor of Ariel Sharon and his successor. Let me remind everyone here tonight that this is the day we've heard of the death of one of the world's great journalists, Anna Politt. Kavaya, doing her job of speaking truth to power in Moscow. She was out here in Sydney five months ago at the Writers' Festival. There are probably not those risks in Israel, but the toll on those who swim against the tide with such consistency and forthrightness as Tanya Reinhardt are great both personally and professionally. Tonight we have the opportunity to hear from this precious voice of reason and humanity inside Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Tanya Reinhardt. As Peter has mentioned, I have had the honor of giving Edward Said Memorial Lecture uh, this weekend. And in the process of preparing for the lecture, I got the incentive to think about the role that Said had played in my life. And I realized that I'm thinking about him not just as the intellectual, the sharp political analyst, the voice of reason and justice, 
But when I think about Said, I think mainly about life in exile as part of the Palestinian diaspora. I think about having to lose the landscape of your childhood, which is part of you, and not being able to return. And in this case, Said's exile is partly my, or indirectly also my responsibility as a member um, of the oppressor of the people who have brought this about. Uh, I would like to read from the opening of my previous book, Israel-Palestine. The State of Israel was founded in 1948 following a war which the Israelis called the War of Independence and the Palestinians called the Nakba, the catastrophe. A haunted, persecuted people sought to find a shelter and state for itself and did so at a horrible price to another people. During the War of 1948, more than half of the Palestinian population of the, at the time, which was uh, 1,380,000 people, were driven off their homeland by the Israeli army. Though Israel officially claimed that the majority of the refugees fled and were not expelled, it still refused to allow them to return as a UN resolution demanded shortly after the 1948 war. Thus, the Israeli land was obtained through ethnic cleansing of the indigenous Palestinian inhabitants. Continuing from there, this is not a process unfamiliar in history. Israel's actions remain incomparable to the massive ethnic cleansing of the Native Americans by the settlers and government of the United States, and I presume Australia as well. Had Israel stopped there in 1948, I could probably live with this. As an Israeli, I grew up believing that this primal sin that our state was founded on might be forgiven one day because the founder's generation was driven by the faith that this was the only way to save the Jewish people from the danger of another Holocaust. But it didn't stop there. In 1967, Israel occupied the Palestinian territories and a new wave of refugees had to go uh, on exile. Since then, Israel is still occupying these, um, uh, these territories with more and more oppressive means. And today, 300, the three million and a half Palestinians live under Israeli occupation. The question that um, Said had to deal with as a member of the oppressed people, and I had to deal with as a member of the oppressing people, was how do we face such a blatant violation of basic human rights and international law? And during the years of the occupation, Two schools of thought have developed on this, two approaches. One was the way of 
arms of fight, of liberation by force among the Palestinians at the time there were those speaking about throwing Israel to the sea. The idea is that we have to win by force and eliminate the source of so much trouble in the area. The other way which Said has stressed is the way paved by Mandela in South Africa. The black in South Africa really outnumbered the white and probably it would have been possible for them or possibly it would have been possible for them to get into power and throw away all the white uh, uh, residents that have been their oppressors for, year, for years. But this is not what they chose. They chose instead to offer a solution that we give, would give equality and human dignity to all residents of the state, including, uh, including the white. Uh, in an article published in uh, March 2001, Edward Said quotes Mandela's words, so now it's Said. The struggle of the blacks in South Africa could attract the imagination and dreams of the entire world because it offered the whole society, even the whites who apparently benefited from the apartheid, the only way that enables the preservation of basic human values. Said continues that the Palestinian struggle must be based on the understanding that the Jewish people are here to stay. The struggle must strive towards a settlement that will enable coexistence based on human dignity, a settlement that will capture the imagination of the world. So this is the road of Mandela, which uh, the Palestinians have also selected in the Algiers uh, uh, National Palestinian Council meeting in, in Algiers in 1988, where they decided to recognize the state of Israel and agree, accept a solution of two states, which means in the 67 border, which means for them uh, accepting to get only 22% of their original uh, land. But as we gather today, uh, these are days of a real difficult test to this vision of Mandela to this uh, and Said and uh, the spirit of a solution that will capture the world's imagination. Because right now, Israel is carrying out, is bringing about the third Palestinian Nakba. There was one in 48, another in 67, and the other one is happening today. Behind the scenes, without coverage, without very little report and reporting, Palestinians are being evicted, chased out of their land, cleansed of their land. They are being locked in enclaves uh, restrict, uh, uh, with 
restrictions on their movements, enclaves that they cannot leave. Palestinians die every day, not just from shooting, but they can die in a roadblock because they had a heart attack and they didn't manage to get in time to the doctor, or because they got wounded, and how can the wounded, injured by Israeli army, and how can the injured survive with the collapse of the medical system? To see what Israel is doing today, uh, let us go back, back to history to, to understand the present Israeli project. The founders' generation of Israel, uh, um, following mainly Ben-Gurion, the founder, uh, has grown up on the, on the myth and faith of the redemption of land. The land on this myth was captured and by, by, non, but by others, and our generation's role is to redeem the land so it would be the land of the Jewish state. In 67, Israel got a hold of the Palestinian um, territories. It reached the Jordan River, which in Ben-Gurion's vision should be the eastern border of Israel, along with the Litani in Lebanon, uh, which was not reached yet. Israel got there, and the question that occupied the Israeli military and political elites since then was how to retain maximum of these territories with minimum Palestinians in them. And then two poles, uh, two approaches were forming in, uh, in the thinking of the Israeli elites. The one assumed that in principle we should be able to find a solution along the lines of the 48 uh, war. It should be po possible to force the Palestinians to move to other places, waiting for the appropriate international conditions. So for example, Sharon, a uh, spokesman of this approach in the 80s, said that Jordan is the Palestinian uh, state and the Palestinians should eventually uh, be moved to Jordan. The other poll um, of Labour Party uh, were not able and not agreeing to accept a 48-style solution. Some because their conscience will not allow them to repeat that, others because they thought the world will not let Israel do that again. On this poll, they developed a plan called the Alon Plan, uh, Igal Alon, one of the founders of labor. And the, the, by the Alon Plan, Israel should hold uh, about 40% of the West Bank, and in the rest, 60%, the Palestinians will be allowed an autonomy or perhaps a confederation with Jordan. Uh, but the, of course, the Palestinians and the Israeli left rejected this plan because it's depriving the Palestinians of 40% of the land, but that was the labor, uh, labor's plan. 
What happened in the years of Oslo since September 93 was in effect a victory of the alone plan. This is not how it was perceived, uh, uh, not how it was presented. The world and the Israelis, and I believe the Palestinians too, were convinced that Israel has changed and it's planning to actually end the occupation, get out of all the territories eventually and give the, let the Palestinians have their state. But what Rabin turned to execute in practice was the alone plan. Israel's grip uh, uh, on 40% of the West Bank was completed with doubling the number of settlements. In fact, it became 50%. But it also did happen that in the other 50%, the Palestinians did get an autonomy self-rule, which I believe was similar to the um, apartheid situation in South Africa, because the, the also there were Bantustans where they could have self-rule, or maybe it was even a bit, a bit more, um, they, maybe the Palestinians had a bit more rights even. As, as disappointing as it was, because it was not the promised uh, end of occupation, it's still a fact that the Palestinians were allowed to live in their 60-50%. But at the same time, the other pole of the redemption of land, of the transfer solution of uh, repeating 48, has never died in Israeli society, especially not in the army. In, among the two uh, most loud voices against the Oslo agreements in Israel were two people, Barak, who was then chief of staff, and Sharon, head of the opposition. They opposed to Oslo from the start, first because from their perspective, even giving this much to the Palestinians is too much. And second, because if you allow the Palestinians autonomy and any form of self-rule, they may develop their political system and start a, a strug political struggle for regaining the whole country. In 1999, the role opened to undo what the Oslo agreements. In 1999, Barak was elected uh, 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 prime minister, and uh, he was before chief of staff. Barak and Sharon's close uh, relations are analyzed in detail in my previous book. And I argue that the escalation of hostilities in, at the end of September, in the beginning of this intifada, was not a spontaneous uh, outburst of, of violence as it is depicted, but rather a planned move uh, on part of Barak and the army to undo the Oslo agreements. For that, it was first necessary to convince the Israeli people that there is no way to have peace with the Palestinians. The Oslo agreements were received with euphoria in Israel on the assumption that it's really leading to two states, to ending the occupation and two states and evacuation of the settlements. The Israeli people, the majority of the Israelis believe that 
the war of independence with its horrible tragedy to the Palestinians was necessary in order to create a state for the Jewish people. But once they have their state, they are not interested in more land. They are interested only in living like a normal people, having a family, going to bars, being normal people. They are not interested in any more wars over land. So Barak had to convince the Israelis that it's impossible to make peace with the Palestinians and there's no choice but entering one more war over our mere existence. Sharon could not have done it, but Barak managed to. So now, what was Barak planning? And for this... Uh, okay, now, to see what the plan was... Um, uh, let us look at this map, which is the, map, the only map that Israel, that Barak, under Barak, has actually proposed to the Palestinians for their, uh, for their final agreement, and you indeed also have it. Um, it was presented in the Taba Elat negotiations in May 2000, so only two months uh, before the Camp David negotiations. And uh, it was published uh, in Yediot Achonot in, in May 19. Uh, under this uh, plan, the Palestinians will get in the final agreement the three dark, um, the three dark area, the four, including Jericho. They would be under Palestinian uh, sovereignty. And the white, um, the light areas in between would be annexed to Israel. And then there are these striped areas that will be held by Israel temporarily. That's, um, so all in all, it looked it look more or less 40% permanently at the end. And at the, and at the hands of Israel, 40 to the Palestinians. Uh, but it's also crucial to notice what happens inside the dark areas, which is the Palestinian enclaves. And we see that inside, um, inside you, there are these little triangles, these are Israeli settlements inside the Palestinian areas. All triangles are Israeli settlements, but these are in the Israeli areas. And in between them, the lighter areas are roads and security zones connecting the settlements. So this is the situation uh, that existed in the West Bank uh, already at the beginning. Uh, at 2000, at the uh, beginning of the present wave of oppression. The situation inside the Palestinian enclaves was supposed to remain the same. The settlements will stay them, there, the, the uh, roads to them will stay there, but the, these areas will be sovereign Palestinian uh, areas. Uh, the the, um, 
in two months, more or less, uh, in Camp David, no map was presented, but miraculously we heard that the plan is giving back 90% to the Palestinians, and there were no details about, no maps about them. So this map is the only proposal that Israel has ever offered in writing in a, in a form of map to the Palestinians. And as you see, it means the Palestinian state will be four isolated um, enclaves with no access to one another and further broken inside into smaller uh, enclaves separated by settlers and the Israeli army. This is the only plan we know of. And what has been happening since then is Israel is working on implementing this plan. The wall uh, that has started, that Sharon has started, is built more or less along the line of these, uh, along these lines. So far, the enclaves are not surrounded, but the wall is more or less going like this on, 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 uh, on the areas that border with Israel. This is, uh, this is the wall. A crucial thing to pay attention to is what is happening in the areas, in the white areas, the areas that are left in the Israeli side of the wall. Uh, that may be hard to see on this map. There are lit, hardly visible gray spots. You can see it in your individual map. The triangles are Israeli settlements, but in between them, there are these gray spots, and these are Palestinian villages and, 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 and towns. The built area of a Palestinian village and town. The white areas that are to be annexed to Israel and are left on this side of the wall are the land of these villages. And this land is moving to Israel and what will happen with the villages that own the land. To take care of them, the wall is built in a very windy way and with many loops that surround a village, separating it from its end. The wall passes near the, the houses of the village and leaves it as a little enclave, often isolated uh, both from the West Bank and from its lands, or in other cases has, uh, has some connection to the West Bank through the army, army roads. Uh, what, what will happen with the people that, that are in the wall area? According to the International Court of Justice uh, in its ruling, there are 400,000 Palestinians that live either in the white areas or that will be affected by the wall and disconnected from their neighborhoods. So 400,000 Palestinians. Uh, what will happen to them? They lose their means uh, 
of living, they lose their farms, they lose their connection with their works, or with the school, no means of sustenance. Uh, eventually, they will have to give up and move as refugees to, the, to live in the outskirts of cities in the, mid, in the center of the, the West Bank. In fact, this has already happened, happens in the north of the West, in the north where the, the wall, so like Calcilia, is one of the first cities where the wall has been completed already uh, in 2003. Calcilia today looks like a ghost town. Many people have left. The others live in the despair and emptiness that characterizes prison's life. And this is the fate that Israel is designing for these people. We are used to think about transfer. When we hear the word transfer, we think about trucks that came to the villages at night in 48 to take the Palestinians across the border. Transfer of this sort is not possible today. The world will not let this happen, even this world. So instead, Israel is applying this invisible transfer of getting the 400,000 people out of their land. It's not the only form of ethnic cleansing. Israel is now trying all means of it prohibits Palestinians with international passports who have lived in the territories to live there. It's, it's doing systematic steps to move Palestinians out of their land and out uh, of Palestine. But still there are three million and a half Palestinians living, uh, living in the occupied territories, even if many of them are chased out, there's still many live there. And what is Israel planning for these Palestinians who live uh, in the enclaves that it's building in the West Bank and in Gaza. Uh, to, to, to hold three million and a half people under occupation with no rights, the question that always bothered the occupiers is how is it possible to control these people in a way that they will not disturb the life of the occupier? And the solution that has been developing since this period of 2000, and particularly with the construction of the wall, is a complex system of open-air prisons. As far as I know, this method of imprisoning a whole nation, not just a group of people, taking a whole nation, putting them in prisons as a means to control and gain quiet for the occupiers is new in history. But this is exactly what is, being, is happening. This started with Gaza. If we look at Gaza, this is the model for the Israeli occupation. Gaza was surrounded on all sides by a wall, by an electronic fence, already during Rabin time. So in Oslo years, Gaza turned already into this prison. 
The only exits from Gaza are controlled by Israel. You can only go to Egypt or to cross to the West Bank via crossings controlled by Israel. Israel controlled every aspect of the economy of Gaza, applying economical pressure, letting, deciding when they let goods in and imports, uh, exports out. They have used starvation as means already before the present situation. Since the, uh, uh, since the evacuation of the settlements, when the control of Gaza turned to be controlled from the outside, what we see is complete strangulation of the Palestinian society. Israel does not allow not just international aid, not just that it holds the tax money that it owns the Palestinians, it doesn't let the Palestinians have any living, including not allowing fishermen to go out to fish. So this is the concept of the prison, where the prison's life are controlled by the prisoners. The Israeli goal for our plan for Aza is that it would be a controlled by gangs that cooperate with the prisoners, with Israel. Their political systems should be destroyed, their social infrastructure should be destroyed, and they should be resorted to prison life. Now, in Gaza it happened. Gaza is an open-air prison. The goal of present Israeli policy is to create the same situation in the West Bank, to complete the plan that the Israeli generals have been offering for the control of the Palestinians. It seemed, a few years ago, it seemed that it would be impossible. Gaza is a much bigger area, as, I'm sorry, the West Bank is a much bigger area than Gaza, uh, the, and it, the, its residents are educated, wealthy, um, relatively, um, uh, people with, with, with some economy is not just refugee camps. But in reality, this is, uh, this is, not, this is what is happening. Uh, so, these are very dark days because the third Nakba is there, the system of prisons is being built, and the world is essentially silent. Not only that, Israel can decide that uh, Beirut should be punished. So Beirut, the Paris, uh, the Paris of the world, so full with tourists and internationals that go there to enjoy the beauty of, of, li of life in the Middle East. And then when Israel decides that Beirut should be destroyed, all the West can do is make sure that the internationals, their residents, will be put on boats and on airplanes and taken out safely before Beirut be ruined. So these are difficult times. And, and we are back to the question of the options, what, what can be done. The question we started with, is the question of Edward Said. And today, 
more than in the past, the poll that it is calling uh, for a forceful solution, solution by elimination of the aggressor, these voices are increasing. Ahmadinejad represents uh, this voice by saying, why should the Arab world pay the price for the Jewish Holocaust? The Israel, Israel should be dismantled and the Jews should return to Europe. Many have lost hope in the possibility of forcing Israel into change. And this line of thinking of the forceful way uh, is growing, increasing. But the other pole, the other way paved by Mandela is still just as much there. And the other lesson of Mandela and the South African struggle was that the struggle should be international. The South African white regime collapsed and, and crumbled because of international press pressure. It started with small students groups that started a boycott or divestment. It grew to all kinds of uh, uh, protests against companies doing business with South Africa, and eventually it forced governments to act and impose sanctions on Drum Africa. But this is a model of non-violent political uh, struggle. If as a professor you decide you are boycotting a conference in, Psycho in South Africa or in Israel, you don't go, you are not doing any violent act, but you show to say that you will not, co not cooperate with a society that allows such crimes to happen. So this world of international struggle still, uh, uh, is still available. And the point is, uh, one of the things I argue in my book that just came out, The Roadmap to Nowhere, is that the last few years were not just years of victory to the, um, to the Israeli power system and expansion, but there was also a period then uh, of pressure on the U.S., uh, on Israel by the U.S. In fact, during this period, despite the success and the apparent success of the pro-Israel lobby, opposition to people's, uh, opposition to Israeli policies in people's minds has only grown. For instance, there was a poll in Europe just two years ago with the question, what is the state most dangerous to world peace? And the majority of Europeans thought it was Israel, even more than the US, which is not true. <laughs> but it seems that the success of propaganda is only partial. The Israeli oppression is silenced, is taken off the mainstream media, media cooperates with the pro-Israel lobbies, but people, people's awareness is only growing. And during this period, I argue, the growing resistance and uh, uh, objections to Israel have led 
the U.S. to demand Israel to some concessions, and Sharon did not evacuate the Gaza settlements of, its own, of his own will. Rather, there was very serious pressure where, of the U.S. that included even military sanctions on Israel in, in this period, and that was the U.S. was yielding to European pressure because it needed more support for its war in Iraq, and to get this, it was necessary to show some progress on the Middle East. The point is that consistent international political struggle can lead Israel to concessions. And this struggle has started and is having its effect. I quote now from the closing of um, um, the roadmap to nowhere. Such struggle begin with the Palestinian people who have withstood years of brutal oppression and who, through the spirit of Tzumud, sticking to their land and daily endurance, organizing and resistance, have managed to keep the Palestinian cause alive, something that not all oppressed people have managed to do. It continues with international struggle, solidarity movements that send their people to the occupied territories and stand in vigils at home, Professors signing boycott petitions, subjecting themselves to daily harassment. A few courageous journalists that insist on covering the truth against the pressure of obedient media and pro-Israel lobbies. Often, this struggle for justice seems futile. Nevertheless, it has penetrated global consciousness. The Palestinian cause can be silenced for a while, as is happening now, but it will resurface. This struggle, which is our only hope, is not only the salvation of the Palestinian people. I believe that this is also, also uh, salvation for the Israelis. The system of prisons that Israel is building is also a prison for the Israelis. And mainly, a small state of seven million residents, 5.5 of them Jewish, is making itself the enemy of the whole Arab world and now the whole Muslim world. Such a state does not have any guarantee of survival in the long run. Therefore, saving uh, the Palestinians is also saving Israel, and possibly it's saving the world because this situation endangers the whole world. Now, I would like just to conclude with, with uh, a few personal, um, personal words. Uh, I, the, last, the last few months, I made a decision that um, I cannot continue living in Israel in the, under the present circumstances. I always had a question of where is the line crossing which would make it immorally immoral and impossible to stay without being a partner to the crime. And my own feeling is that this line has been crossed this summer. This is a very difficult decision for me because uh, 
I love the country. I was born there. I, I, I love everything from the sea, the breeze, the sunset, the air. This is my country. I love the people. And I never believed that I will have to leave it. I thought I will end my life in struggle in this country. And now I'm going on exile, like Said. Uh, it's an exile of choice, and it's a big difference when you go out of choice and when you go on exile. And because it's an exile of choice, I feel also very bad like I'm betraying my comrades in struggle. Because along with Israel of the occupation, along with all the things we have seen here, there's also another Israel and another Israel-Palestine forming there the last years. There's lots of people struggling in Israel, demonstrating and signing petitions, Doing, spending all the, their days on struggle. But most specifically, there's one form of struggle that developed which is really marvelous. Along the line of the wall, the Palestinians, the Palestinian farmers, are determined not to wait for the third Nakba to happen, but rather stand there on, on the ground in front of the Israeli bulldozers and an army in a non-violent opposition. Armed only with the courage of people who have stuck to their land all these years, they stand there with just with their body, and Israelis have been joining them. So the struggle has become in the last three years a joint Palestinian-Israeli struggle. And they are standing army brutality and going there every week for three, three years. I've been there. I was in Mascha, I was in Berlin, but it became impossible for me because the army's brutality is too big. I cannot stand it physically. They shoot, they beat you, they tear gas. I don't understand how the kids of 20 can stand it, but I cannot. But when I leave, I also leave the struggle, but I pledge to my comrades in Israel that I will continue the struggle because the road that Edward Said and Mandela showed us, the road of political, international, nonviolent struggle is still there and can lead us to victory. is uh, question time and uh, there are two microphones, one just over here and one just over here. 
Um, you're asked, uh, we've got half an hour of questions for Tanya. Uh, you're asked to come down to and form a small queue, if you like, uh, and the same over there, and we'll simply go one, two, one, two. Uh, so anyone who's got any questions, uh, please give your name and uh, ask your question as often. Uh, please keep the question as short as you can. Rather, make a ask a question rather than make a statement. And uh, anyone with a question, please come to the microphone. G'day. Um, I kind of feel a little bit nervous about being first, but I'll break the ice. Um, I'd like to say first of all. Thank you so much for the speech I, and for coming here. Um, and I think it's really something you said about knowing when the line is being crossed was something that really hit home for me. Um, my question is about the pressure. You talked about the pressure of the United States in Israel during Sharon to leave the settlements in the Gaza and to, to assist the US in their fight with Iraq. But in your, in your eyes, or how much of a pressure do you think the United States has put on Israel? And how much has that played a part in Israel's position in the Middle East as it stands? How much of that is, is due to American pressure that you see? No, the American pressure was an episode. One year of pressure, unprecedented in the history of the US-Israel relation, and never to repeat. As soon, uh, no, uh, since, never, and has never repeated since. Uh, the, as soon as Israel evacuated the settlements and the crossing uh, agreement was signed, the US uh, let Israel continue with its policy, and the U.S. obtained its goal of appeasing international pressure because the world was very satisfied that Israel now turned on the road of peace, and as long as there is quiet, the Palestinian uh, suffering does not concern the U.S. So, of course, the U.S. is completely backing Israel, and, the, and without the U.S. backing, that could not happen. And part, the large part of the international struggle is demanding of the U.S. to stop backing Israel and uh, demand European government, demand Australian government, demand everybody to stop backing Israel. Uh, could you please give your name when you're asking the question? Uh, Yuri Vitz, my name. Um, I'm just curious about your uh, analysis of the change in dynamics since the war in Lebanon, the recent uh, bombing of Lebanon. Um, Olmert has said that the convergence plan is now on hold and therefore the unilateral approach that he had proposed, was elected on and so on, uh, was not going to be pursued. So in what way has um, that episode changed the dynamics of um, of uh, Olmert's plans and Israeli policy. You shouldn't 
treat the convergence plan seriously at all. Whatever change it is in Israeli internal politics, the convergence plan is this plan. Oh, it's no longer on the map. Uh, uh, that is, uh, Israel will complete the wall. Israel will get the U.S. agreement that it's impossible to reach an agreement with the Palestinians. Hence, Israel should be allowed to, to set its own plans. But there may be also evacuation of some settlements, though there were never a list of which settlements will be evacuated. So maybe like in Gaza, some settlements also will be evacuated and maybe not. Uh, why it's now, he, he had to have this plan because, as I mentioned many times, the Israeli public is tired of the occupation. Paradoxically, they voted for Sharon because he promised he will evacuate settlements. And then they promised Olmert because he made the same promise. The convergence plan is Sharon's plan. He, Olmert only gave it a new name. Right now, the, uh, in Israel, the Lebanon was a defeat, and when a society is facing a military defeat, it's very common, and that is what's happening now. It's moving to the right. That's the... the the first reaction is let's get stronger, not let's stop fighting, but let's get stronger. And then the convergence plan is less popular, and, uh, and then Alma drops it until there will be time again to, to pull out a peace plan, and then there will be the convergence again, and the media will repeat it again, and so on. Hi, um, my name is Paul. Um, I just wanted to first of all thank you for talking about the role that um, international pressure can play in you know, creating a solution to this problem because, and for reminding us that by being silent we also are part and parcel of the situation just as much as you are as an Israeli. But I actually wanted to ask you about um, the Israeli the peace movement in Israel which you kind of alluded to at the end. Um, Specifically, the sort of the mainstream of the peace movement, um, epitomised by groups such as Peace Now and certain sort of dovish sections of the Labour Party, and the way that these groups do do present a much needed voice, calling for things like full withdrawal from the West Bank. But the way that they the way that they phrase that, the dialogue that they do that through, very much being this is the only way to truly secure Israel. This is the only way to truly realise the Zionist dream. You know, we, you know, so, this sort of thing which remains very much within the sort of militarist dialogue within this Zionist discourse. And I wanted to ask you, like, your opinion of how can, can a true and can a permanent solution and peace truly be realised through a movement which doesn't actually reject this militarism of the Israeli state and doesn't actually take a stand, you know, a more, a more, yeah, I think, I think you know what I'm trying to say, that remains within the mainstream in order to get support, but in doing so actually legitimises parts of the, um, you know, the oppression which Palestinians face every day. Yeah, it's true. This has been a, a traditional problem of the center-left in Israel. Uh, Peace Now had various periods, but uh, often has, has taken the line you described. It's important to remember that there are many groups that are completely clear. Uh, 
קואליישן אוף וימן, וימן פור ג'אספיס, מחסום וואץ', יש גבול, למני, מני, מני אורגניזיישן that don't make this mistake. And there are others. Um, yeah, I would like to see this changed, and I agree with you. Uh, and my only comfort is really to look at the young people, the, the, those in their 20s, those who are now spending half of their time in the territories, working in Palestinian villages, staying with the Palestinians, standing in front of the army, the young anarchists against the wall, This is a new generation of Israeli struggle. It's there. It exists. So uh, there, is, there, are me, there are people to support in Israel. The only problem is that they are small, and the Israeli democracy is very is, is empty. It's, it's, in fact, the military rules. So as courageous as their struggle is, they can't do it alone. They need... They need the help of the world. My name's um, Caroline. Um, I just wanted to ask about the relationship between academics and students because um, I'm a student at Sydney University and um, we launched our Palestine Week this week and we've been facing an incredible amount of repression on campus by campus security. Um, <laughs> yeah, tearing down our posters that say anything has to do with Palestine. We can't book rooms around the issue of Palestine. Um, they took all our names and student numbers at a theatrical action we had today. So, um, yeah, amongst other things, they said we couldn't have the Israel flag because it was anti-Semitic as well um, at our action. Um, yeah, I just, I think that, yeah, it's really important these, like... you know, like you as an academic coming out because it creates a better space for us as students to express our politics on campus. So I just, I, I'm not quite sure how that relationship can be better developed, but I think it's a, a very important one if we are going to actually create this international movement on campus. <laughs> You want my comment? Yeah, I <laughs> Sorry. Think oh, well, first, independently of any issue, you have, an issue, you have the issue of freedom of speech. This is something that no student movement ever in the world was willing to give up. So if your right to present your view in the campus is being indeed tampered with, I think this is the place to organize a real struggle on freedom of speech. That's And to the other ones that tell you you are anti-Semitic, you can quote me at least saying that I think saving the Palestinians is saving the Jews and the Israelis, and being against Israel is the best act of solidarity and compassion with the Jews that one can form today. Hello, my name's Tim. Um, I'd like to ask what probably sounds a metaphysical question a bit about the right to exist. Now, it's a phrase that's heard often, particularly out of the Israeli government, and I guess it's easy to be cynical about it, seeing as it largely exists as a phrase so that the 
Palestinians can always be accused of not recognising it. And every time they say something that seems to recognise it, Israel can point to something else that they've said and say, aha, but you don't really recognise our right to exist. But nevertheless, it seems to mean something. And so I was wondering, basically asking you, as an Israeli, what, if anything, the right, right to exist means to you and whether or not you think it would be more easier to dump it or more useful to dump it, or whether it actually has a real content? I don't think we make substantial progress by dumping rights. I mean, it's not real. Rights are rights. Rights are determined, and, uh, and that's why there's international law. But rights should be very well defined. Right? So, so the right to exist means the right of self-determination which at the present, both two people claim this right of self-determination, the Palestinians and the Israelis. They want to have their own state, which is their self-determination. And I think it is their basic right to have self-determination. The other question, what is the limits of the rights, also is not complex at all. There's international law. You cannot occupy someone's land, you cannot take, and if you have occupied, there's Geneva conventions that tell you that you cannot destroy houses, you cannot build roadblocks, you cannot kill, your duty is to protect as an occupier. So we have everything we need to, to, to guide us on this, and so I don't think revisions are needed on this point. Uh, Professor Reinhardt, thank you for your wonderful lecture and uh, uh, your visit here. I'll just reiterate the point that a Sydney student made is very important. I should explain, I'm an academic at Sydney. My name is David Pritchard. I'm in the Department of Classics and Ancient History here at Sydney. But your visit is very important because uh, despite um, this wonderful meeting tonight, it is the case that Australian universities are still getting their head around the professional ethics raised by the Israeli occupation, how we should professionally and ethically deal with our Israeli colleagues and the difficulties we, we see um, uh, in the Middle East today. I was very interested by, by your paper as it in, in fact gave some sense to what the Israeli army is doing in the occupied territories. Often we simply perceive it as a chaotic policy, a set of reactions, whereas I think you sketched very originally how, in a sense, the Alon plan is uh, being uh, enacted before our eyes. Now, a key assumption of your talk was that the Israeli military has played a leading role and there is an Israeli military elite that is behind many of the directions of the occupation. And my questions are, could you clarify whether that, that is the case, that you believe that there is a military elite that is informing many of these policies? If that is the case, why is, is the Israeli politic and civil society so weak and so unable to question the action of the professional military class? And finally, as a citizen of a democracy with a strong military tradition engaged in uh, um, uh, challenging uh, military activities today, what lessons can we learn from Israel about keeping control of our military and using our democracy to keep okay. it in check? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Keeping control of our democracy. The last one. Allow me just a little correction before I answer. Uh, what is being realized now is no longer the alone plan. That was Oslo. What is now being realized is ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, the other pole of redemption, of throwing them, pushing them away. So 
in the history of Israel, there are these two, uh, two poles. I discussed this also in my previous book. The two poles are apartheid, which was Oslo. Give them some rights to live in their Bantu stands. And genocide, which is what is now. These are the two options that the Israeli society, have, the political elites, have produced for the Palestinian problem. Now, regarding the military, that is true. The military has always been a dominant factor in Israeli politics, and it became more so uh, in the last years since Barak, uh, and especially since Sharon came to power. It's becoming even evident and clear in Israeli discourse. There is awareness of that, that, for example, the last war uh, was decided by the army and the political system only approved it. You could watch on TV, you see parrots, Amir parrots, our labor defense minister, when he appears on TV, he's always surrounded by two generals and you could almost see how he looks like a puppet <laughs> that they're moving. It's all very visible. The Israeli democracy is in a serious crisis because first the party system collapsed. Kadima, Kadima is the party that Sharon founded, a one-man party. It has no party uh, institutions and its only item in the constitution of the party allows its head to appoint directly not only the ministers but also candidates for the parliament. So there is no party body there. It's a one-man thing. Labor has been still functioning as a party, but it's much weaker. And in any case, if even there are parties, they all propose the same thing. So Peretz, when he was running to elections, said that on external matters, I will be like Sharon. Sharon was still running. But I will bring social change. Right? So there is ritual of of elections, and your question is very serious. It's a, a, it's a serious danger. I'm not sufficiently aware of the situation in Australia. I don't think, from what I know, the danger is so acute. It's a specific danger. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we should remember this as a danger, because this is the process where a political democracy becomes a ritual. You have something that looks like a party, but it's not. Something that looks like elections, but it's not. And in fact, it's all run by the army. Is a possible venue. And Israel is a young state, and I think it did not build yet sufficient democratic institutions, like it has no constitution. So there are things that more veteran states have defenses that have been built uh, I, I, during the years that are lacking in Israel. That's why it's so easy to, to, for the things to collapse this way. Hello, Tanya. Uh, my name is Idan. I'm from UTS. Uh, first, I want to say that uh, I think you're a very brave woman, and you're a very beautiful woman for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm very, very, very sad to hear that you're going to leave the State of Israel because the State of Israel needs people like you. Um, but I still have a question. I'd like to hear a comment from you. Uh, what is your view about the necessity of the Jewish people to have their own uh, Jewish country? And in what price, of course? Uh, yeah, the question... Uh, I guess it's a question of one state, two states. It's the same question. Uh, 
in my own vision, my own utopia, you, uh, we don't need ethnic-based states. I believe, personally, I will be very happy to see in Israel a multi-ethnic, multicultural state where Jews, Israelis, foreign workers, Palestinians all live together. And I believe, particularly in our case, that would be huge. It, it, it would be such an interesting and lively and, and place. And with, with the Palestinians... The Palestinians in many ways have men embody what the Jewish people have dreamt about when they came to the country. They came to the country because they were tired of living in a non-productive way. They wanted to renew their relation to the land. And that relation to the land you find with the Palestinians that really live on their land from generation after generation. And Israelis instead became real estate agents. And it would be real, it would be beautiful to live together. And generally, a multicultural society is more interesting than ethnically based society. With all this said, I mentioned before the right of self determination, and what should determine is the wish of the people. And as it stands now, the majority of both people wants to have an ethnically based state. The Israelis are most vocal about it. They declare they want a Jewish state, but the Palestinians want it exactly the same way. And in polls in Palestinian, 80% of the Palestinians prefer their own state. The two people now are in this national state, and they cannot yet see the beauty of sitting under the vine in the evening, Palestinians and Israelis together. The wish of the people must be respected. So I think any solution, the solution should be based first on giving the Palestinian, the Palestinian land back to the Palestinians. The Palestinians should get back all their lands beyond the 67 border. They can have their own state there if that's what the two people want for now. And we can hope that in the future we will find a more beautiful and more imaginative way to live together. Professor Ori, how are you? My name is Bob. Um, <clears throat> Shalom. Shalom. Habibi. <laughs> um, thank you for your report. And uh, I'd like to give you an undertaking that I'll take your report to the clans and report it as it was reported here. Um, It sounds something like a report from pre-war Germany. And the relevance of it, I think, was stated in your uh, final uh, words about the relevance to the worldwide politic and the dangers that it poses to the worldwide politic. Um, so can I confirm that what you're telling us here today is that either we find a solution as people of goodwill or the others will find the final solution? Would that be correct? Either we find a goodwill solution or the... The final solution. The violent solution. It's, it's, it's the violent elimination. Yeah. Yeah. Yet this partly is, is, is 
the struggle. I believe that the, the violent solution is, is deeply wrong and... Uh, no, no, the, and the final solution. Huh? Final. Sorry, <coughs> I probably didn't pass the question. What the solution, Penito. Are, are you asking whether this is a ethnic cleansing solution of the Palestinians, a final ethnic cleansing of Palestinians that's been proposed? Is that what you're asking? Yes. Whether Israel is suggesting... Oh, ah, I see. It's not been suggested to send the Palestinians to, to guest chambers, if this is what you meant. This is not openly in any way uh, on the table, but the point is that what is happening is this invisible and slow ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, and I think it is the goal. The, the, the goal is to drive the Palestinians out, out of Palestine, but it's the Israeli elites understand that this cannot come overnight. They have hopes in, during the Iraq war, they hoped that it's possible to move the Palestinians to Iraq and so on. So, so this is what they are striving for, but they now have to do it in the slow way. Not all of them on tracks, but every time you gain you get, get more of them. First you squeeze them to the enclaves in the hopes that eventually life in the enclaves will... Li How long can Gaza go the way, live the way they live? It's, it's, it's a real crisis situation. I assume that the military elites think that somehow this could lead eventually to the evacuation of Gaza. I, I don't know more. I don't know how exactly they think that will happen because the Palestinians are there to stay. But I believe that's what, what they think. So we're talking about the rock and the hard place then with the sort of Damocles hanging over. Yeah. Thank you, ma'am. No, look, you don't need questions. Thank you. Didn't understand. Uh, can I say, we're coming to the end of the... Well and truly, we're over the end of the half hour, so I think we need to take two questions from this side, two questions from that side, and, and then call it a day. Professor, thank you very much for an interesting talk. Uh, my name is Paul. I just wanted to ask a question, or if you could elaborate a little on the comments you made around uh, Camp David and the lead-up to Camp David and what Ehud Barak's intentions were, and in particular, you mentioned that he was making an attempt to change the Israeli public's opinion or to move towards the idea that peace couldn't be made with the Palestinians, that it wasn't an option. And also that thinking was very similar to Ariel Sharon, that there was a link there. So I wondering if you could elaborate on that, and I guess it ties into what we've been discussing um, about how, how the Israeli public opinion or how open or invisible um, Israelis are in, the, in a democratic state, albeit imperfect, to what is actually going on. Um, yeah, the, the, the Barak and Kim David, by now there's a lot written on it, including in detail in my first book, Israel, Palestine. Uh, Barak offered the Palestinian no Palestinians nothing but preserving the, the, the present state of affairs. And you can still ask why did Arafat refuse? That's what he had anyway. Uh, he knew that if he rejects it, he would be attacked and described as the enemy of the democratic world and so on. Why did he reject it? And the answer is that what Barack demanded, the trick that did it that brought to explosion, he demanded also a Palestinian declaration of end of conflict. 
No, end of conflict sounds wonderful, right? Of course, we want end of conflicts, but what it means in reality is that UN Resolution 242 no longer holds. That's the resolution that said that Israel is occupying Palestinian territories and they should return to the Palestinians. Once the Palestinians declare they have no longer any claims, they lose the protection of UN resolutions, and no Palestinian leader could have accepted this, so this led to the explosion. Why the Israelis did not see it at the time? I really think it's not fair to ask this just for the Israelis. This is the typical way that propaganda works. You, you get headlines, people don't have time to read, the, the information is in the paper, but who has time to read the, under the headline? You read the headline, the headline said, Barak offers to divide Jerusalem, to evacuate 90% to the Palestinians, um, but Arafat rejects, and people don't read and analyze, but this is how it works on every, almost every topic, so why the Israelis did not see that they were deceived there is something that I can understand. This is, it's typical. Howard Zinn once said that people should internalize one basic truth, which is that governments lie. <laughs> and And as long as you have not really internalized it, you will be lied to and lied to and lied to again and believe and believe and believe again. That's see. We're particularly knowing about that truth, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, thanks, um, Jeff, and uh, particularly enjoyed your talk. Um, as a professor of linguistics, um, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts about the issue that sometimes it appears as though the different sides are just not communicating at all. For example, and it reminds me a bit of uh, a divorcing couple where there are different arguments that are just not being heard. And I'd just like to... Um, uh, you talk about Israel as if it's playing the uh, key and perhaps sole role in terms of the determination of, uh, of what happens. And I just wanted to um, get your thoughts on the role of the Arab countries that prior to 67... Jordan uh, administered the West Bank, Egypt administered Gaza. After 67, there was the Khartoum conference where Arab countries refused to negotiate or to talk with Israel. And more recently, there's been the uh, comment that uh, uh, it's not the role of the Palestinians to determine what happens to the land of uh, Palestine in that it's uh, a sacred Muslim land. So I just wondered if you could comment about the role of the uh, Arab countries. Well, for quite some time now, there is the Saudi plan, which is completely explicit and clear, and the Saudi plan says that if Israel ends its occupation of uh, Palestine, the whole Arab world is willing to have peace with it. This is a concrete offer. It's been there for a long time, and all Israel needs to do is accept it. Uh, good evening, my name's Paul. Um, my question is in relation to the Israeli-Palestinian population, the Arab citizens of Israel. Their situation, obviously, is very different to the West Bank and Gaza, but it's related. Uh, and uh, in recent years, there appear to have been new laws and other measures passed by the Israeli government which will both directly or indirectly make their lives increasingly difficult. 
What do you think is the end game, the end result of Israeli policy towards Israeli Palestinians? Do they have anything to fear? Um, yeah, you're, first you are right, just to make it clear, that legally the status is very different. The Israeli Palestinians are Israeli citizens. They vote. They have all the formal rights as Israelis, and the Palestinians have no rights. They are occupied people. So it's a big difference. And you are also right that this basic fact that the Israeli Palestinians are citizens is being, uh, that is, has been a target of, of attacks lately. And there are these new laws that restrict, but there also there are direct, clear calls, more or less, to deprive them of citizenship. And the way it's done is by saying they should join the Palestinian state. Obviously, they want to because they are Palestinians. Let them join the Palestinian state. We will move them to Palestine. That's uh, move their village and leave the land and move the village, like with the wall. And this is happening. And Yes, the, the Israeli society is becoming more and more racist and more and more uh, confident that you can use any mean of power and that there is nothing like human rights and nothing like international law to stop it. And this, this is, yes, they would like, they, again, I'm talking about voices in Israel, about the, the political leadership, about, and this is even only the, right-wing leadership. Olmert is not saying that uh, openly. This is there, and, uh, and of course our, our role is to make sure it doesn't happen. Okay, last question. Hi, my name is Majid. Um, I just wanted to ask a question in reference to the, the question, what is there to do? Um, you spoke of Mandela and you also spoke about violence being used by Palestinians as seeking to achieve the objective of pushing Israel into the sea. Um, Mandela used violence against civilian infrastructure in order to bring the apartheid government to the negotiating table. What is your view on violence being used on the Palestinian side against civilian infrastructure to bring the Israelis to the negotiating table? Violence, you mean... Against, like, against like, civilian infrastructure, not against civilians. ANC military action. Mm -hmm. What? ANC military action, I suppose. Mm -hmm. OK, the, sticking to the non-violent mode of resistance is difficult because, because you often feel that you are defeated. But this is something that we learned even before Mandela, we learned from Gandhi that the only way really for victory is non-violent resistance. Because as long as you are non-violent and not using any military actions, uh, it's difficult to uh, oppress you. So it's not always so. You remember the pictures of the Indian going one wave after wave unarmed Indians to the row of soldiers that beat them and, and it's happening in the same way in Israel, these youngsters, these 20 years old anarchists against the wall and they, together with the Palestinian comrades they are going every Friday to be beaten by the army and you seem you think you are defeated but this is not so, it's this 
type of courage and determination that catches the world's attention and shows that you have the solution that will capture the world's imagination. And if just this value is not enough, I would say that in the violent way, eventually, uh, you will lose. As Gandhi said, eye for an eye leaves everyone blind, and this is true. And, uh, and uh, uh, particularly when it's such an unequal battle of powers, when you are fighting one of the strongest armies in the world. So you can reach local victory, but it would be with an enormous price and with no guarantee. So Hezbollah did win the Lebanon war, but it was a horrible, horrible price to, to, to Lebanon, to the Lebanese society. So, so eventually, as, as long as it takes and as frustrating it seems, this is our only way. It's political and non-violent struggle. I'd just like to do two things uh, now. Uh, the first is to just say a few words of thanks to Tanya. The second is to say a few words about action. Um, and I think no one would support that more than Tanya herself. There's action happening in Sydney uh, about these very questions and I'd like everyone to know about it. What you do about it obviously is, is your own concern but at least everyone to know. Um, so the first thing I'd like to say is what an absolutely wonderful night it's been listening to you, Tanya. Um, it recalls uh, another similarly great woman, Hanana Shrawi, in this same place. Uh, equally charismatic and equally with uh, a powerful voice rising through the fog of propaganda. And uh, uh, it is truly, um, we are enormously grateful to have a voice like your own, not only as Aidan Granite, who praised everything about you, including your beauty, um, uh, here, but, but, and in Israel, but to have you actually busting through a lot of the fog and the clouds and, and all the rest of it of the, of the uh, material that we get on the media from the Middle East. Uh, I think um, I've just written my own book about this very question and I think it is very difficult to hear a clear voice that breaks through the dominant narrative like you've done tonight. And uh, I'm sure everyone here thanks you very much for your heartfelt speech. Thank you. Secondly, uh, there's a few things I just want to say. Uh, number one is about Tanya's books. Uh, they are on sale here. 
they're in all good bookshops and bad bookshops um, uh, around Sydney, uh, particularly, in fact, in Glee Books, just over the road, and I think it's a Glee Books table here. Uh, can I just say uh, that the earlier book of Tanya's, the Israel-Palestine, How to End the War of 1948, a slim but powerful little volume, if ever there was one, uh, is a superb uh, piece of history. And the second book completes that history and takes us up to the, the current times. Both books are worth buying, and uh, I hope people will uh, think of both of those books of Tanya's. The second thing to say is that there is, at the moment, Palestine Week in Sydney University. For anyone here who's from Sydney University or any other people, um, maybe Emma uh, Torzilla would like to come up and just say something about what's happening at Sydney University. Uh, there's also uh, a um, relief fund event coming up this Saturday night. Em. Come up, please. You can. Hang on one second. There's also a Palestine Relief Fund um, event this Saturday night um, at the Manning Bar at Sydney University, which is a way of raising money for Palestinians back in Palestine who desperately, desperately need it at the moment, with the money going through the uh, Union Aid Fund, a feeder. So for anyone who wishes to be part of that, uh, that's available. Uh, and Em, you might like to just talk about student activities. Um, well, yeah, we've got Palestine going on this week, which is a week called by the cross-campus network of Students Against War and Racism. And there's Palestine Week happening in a few universities across New South Wales, actually, at Wollongong and stuff like that. Um, so, actually, tomorrow we're going to have some actions um, at 12 o'clock, probably near the library and around the centre of main campus. And if people want to get involved, they can come along to the SRC at 11 o'clock. We're going to do some organising and decide about other events um, to be happening that day. And, again, there's Arab Beat on Saturday night at Manning Bar, which is part of... Um, it's going to be part of Palestine Week, um, so it'd be really great if you could all get involved in that. Um, yeah, one, one other thing as well. At UTS on Thursday night, we have an event called Cafe Intifada, which will be showing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll be showing um, films from Palestine. We'll be having speakers. Um, we'll be having poetry and bands, and it is to raise money for the radical left at UTS, which is running a ticket for the Students' Association elections, which is very much in solidarity with Palestine and the struggle in the Middle East. Thank you. Uh, there's also, as I understand it, a table out the front of the Coalition for Justice and Peace in Palestine, an activist general community activist group supporting uh, Palestine and um, justice in Palestine, uh, a reasonably new group that's been formed uh, if you'd like to put your name down with them, they would very much like your support and membership. Uh, and finally, Ghassan Haj um, wishes to talk about Lebanon. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I, just, uh, I don't want to talk about Lebanon as much as uh, just telling you that uh, Saturday, this Saturday, uh, 14th of October, at uh, 11 o'clock, 
uh, we have uh, a memorial for uh, the Lebanese uh, war dead uh, at Sydney Town Hall inside. And uh, I would really like to urge as many of you to come as possible. Uh, I just very quickly say why we're doing this. One, because there's a lot of Australian Lebanese who, are, who were in mourning, and they were mourning privately. And I thought, and many of us thought, that it was very important that this morning be a public event, not just a private event. A second important thing is that those of us who watched the Israeli onslaught on Lebanon and felt that some people in Australia should say, enough, don't take your time, please, stop it, and didn't. I think we'd like as many people who feel they want to be heard and want to tell the government that they did not agree with their foreign policy of letting Israel take their time and killing as many people as possible in Lebanon to come to this event to say, no, we refuse this kind of foreign policy. Finally, and most importantly, I think that in the face of so much racism towards the Lebanese and especially Muslim Lebanese people, it is very important to come and join them in their mourning. It, is, uh, it would be a very important gesture of solidarity, a gesture of inclusion, a gesture of making them feel part of Australian society much more than any crappy mode of telling them to become part of our values or whatever. Just make sure you come and mourn with them. Thank you. And can I lastly suggest the pathetic old democratic values of writing in support of Palestine to newspapers and politicians? Thank you. Thank you for coming and um, see you later.